Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kyle Beadle, and today we'll be talking to Professors Stin Runing, Olivier Schmidt, and Amelie Chusen from the University of South Denmark, all of whom are editors of a new book entitled Wartime, Temporality, and the Decline of Western Military Power. Thank you all for joining me here today. It's great to be here. And since we have a little bit of a panel here, uh, would you mind uh, introducing yourselves and your background? Ladies first, Emily. All right. Well, my name is Emily Toysen, and uh, I'm an assistant professor at the Center for War Studies at the University of Southern Denmark. And my research mainly focuses on the changing character of war, so the question of how war has changed over the last couple of decades and what that does to the norms that we have on how and when we fight. So which rules um, do we adhere to when we fight? Do the rules still fit these type of questions? And I also do a little bit on Baltic Sea security and uh, Danish security policy and German security policy in that region. I guess I'll go next. Uh, My name is Olivier Schmidt. I'm a professor with special responsibilities again at the University of Southern Denmark, the Center for War Studies, um, and I'm working on uh, alliances, coalitions, and contemporary warfare, uh, especially the impact um, and the issues of uh, the main strategic issues. Um, And I'm also right now doing uh, quite uh, some work, I hope, on uh, military innovation and military adaptation, trying to provide a framework on how to understand military change. And um, currently, I'm uh, speaking to you from Paris because I'm in secondment from uh, SDU, so the University of Southern Denmark, to the French Institute for Higher National Defense Studies, which is basically the French equivalent to the National Defense University in the US or the Royal College of Defense Studies in the UK. So I'm in secondment there for two years uh, as Director of Research and Studies. And my name is Steen Wurning, and I am a professor of war studies, also at the University uh, of Southern Denmark. Um, And my research has focused for a good number of years on NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's it's crisis management operations in the Balkans. And when NATO then went to Afghanistan, I I followed in terms of research and um, have been tracing why, why is it so hard why is it so easy to get in and hard to get out? And uh, the same in Libya. And and why is NATO not getting into Syria? And so that was at least my background for getting into the questions that we raise in this book. And how did y'all all come to this project? Where does where does this collection kind of fit into current literature? Well, if I can take a first step at that, I, I think we, we, we have all worked on the main concepts that are associated with Western forces. And they focus on technology, they focus on speed, superiority, uh, quick wins, shock and awe, and uh, really a a number of of, of concepts that that demonstrate uh, ability to win. But that was not what we were observing. We observed drawn out wars NATO forces are still in the Balkans. We've forgotten about that. You know, obviously still in Afghanistan, though they're leaving, but they're not winning uh, and so forth. And we, we saw this as a paradox and we wanted to get into it and, and find the, the some, ask some broader questions as to why does this paradoxical situation happen. Um, if I may jump in uh, as well. Um, so Stan described the overall objective of the book, but um, I think we d- did not arrive at um, the book itself immediately. 
because originally we intended to actually try to write a handbook and uh, trying to uh, uh, collect, uh, as Tim mentioned, the different concepts that are guiding Western warfare. And it's when, you know, we're in the process of saying, okay, where do we go with the handbook? How does it fit into, into the literature? That we realize that actually we did not want to write a handbook at all. Uh, what we're interested in was actually to try to criticize and put those com- um, concepts into context and try to find an overarching um, and maybe also underlying uh, issue that might have um, helped explain why the West, despite its uh, material superiority and its um, proliferation of uh, intellectual activities when it comes to uh, concept creation, was still not, uh, or at least was not really effective um, in modern warfare. So the project kind of evolved over time, and it's also through discussions with um, people from Chatham House that we refined what uh, became this uh, ultimately an edited uh, volume. But uh, originally, we wanted to write a handbook, and we realized it's not where we want to go in the end. And now I'm jumping in because uh, it's it's quite interesting, as Olivier rightly uh, put it, that it developed over time, and I think over time in our discussions, we ended up that time is actually the factor that connects all of these concepts and that then contributes to how um, and why the West is perceived to be in decline and why why at least the jury is, is out on what's going on there, right? And how these, uh, these dynamics interact. And I think we ended up, even though we set out with a slightly different goal, we ended up with a very interesting um, volume. And exactly based on these, these discussions that we had, we, we actually understood that time and its different uh, conceptions is what matters here and how time sort of plays out in the West, but also is understood within the West and is then sort of contrasted um, within the West in its different understandings of norms, for example, and, and the way of how we approach warfare. So, uh, yeah, we, I think we settled on time through time, <laughs> in a way. And what was the process of collecting these essays together? So, you know, as, 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 the, as the book emerged in our thinking, mm-hmm. we started uh, looking at, um, dividing up, you know, what, what are the key pieces of this, and and you know, as as we 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 zoomed in on the core question, why is the West so powerful and yet strategically so fragile? And we could look at the literature that has a lot of answers to this, which deals really with you know why do why do the small and weak win wars? There's a literature on that. And which is about these small actors or asymmetric actors being smart. But we felt that there were, we lacked answers when it came to the West itself. What is happening within the West that is making it so ill-disposed to deal with these asymmetric actors? And as we, we grappled with the core pieces, we settled on, well, there's a political piece to this. Something is going on politically in the West and uh, that became my basket. And there's something about the way we understand law and norms and the distinction between peace and war. That became Amelie's piece. And then finally, there's, there's something about the way we do military operations and battle. And that became Olivier. We needed a French to cover that because, you know, <laughs> they're, the, they're the hot-blooded Latins. <laughs> I think also in terms of uh, process itself, uh, once we had settled on the um, the three sections of the book, uh, each of us could collect and contact uh, specific authors. And um, we organized two workshops, um, one at uh, Yale University, um, which was facilitated by one of our colleagues, uh, James Rogers, who was a visiting fellow there. And so he organized a, a one-day workshop on the ideas um, on the book, which allowed us to basically test the overall framework. And we had an author's workshop um, at Chatham House in London um, because the book is, pub- uh, is co-published by Chatham House and uh, Brookings Institution Press. 
And so having this uh, workshop um, in London, you know, helped to refine what exactly we wanted to get from the uh, from the authors and um, make sure that there was a consistency in um, in the overarching teams that they were addressing, basically making sure that they were um, answering the um, advices and indications that we had given them. Uh, so, I mean, if it's possible, I'd just like to give a shout out to uh, um, James, to uh, Yale University, and also to Chathamouse, and uh, because they also made this book possible, uh, in a sense. So, before we get into the individual sections, there are three kind of um, three words that I'd kind of like for you to define um, trajectories, perceptions, and temporalities. And um, if you could just tackle that and tackle those in, in relation to wartime, because those are really three of the major themes that kind of come through. Okay, so so I can do tra- trajectory, uh, and then I'll leave the two other concepts to my uh, co co authors. Um, trajectory is really about the Western self image as being a force of progress. That the West politically represents a progressive move toward a better tomorrow, and so. When we fight wars, we fight wars for progress, to create a better world. Uh, And we tend to see uh, the West as as, um, not only a force for good, but also as uh, a community of nations that through centuries have become stronger and have become the the centerpiece of international order so that war not only for ourselves but for the international order has come to represent something we fight for progress and it is this sense that we are powerful and when we fight we fight for a better tomorrow that is really put at the test through these wars that we examine and then I'll leave uh, the other two concepts to to my co-colleagues. So I can uh, get into perceptions a little bit. And what we mean by perceptions, of course, perceptions of time and how they're enshrined in an existing normative order in this case. So, for example, this perception that wartime and peacetime are separate states of international relations, that's a Western perception, right, where based on a long sort of Western tradition of international law that has um, sort of become globalized over time and after the Second World War, but is sort of deeply enshrined in like enlightenment ideas, right? And, and, and sort of goes, goes way um, back in time. Um, where we have this idea that war is the exception and peace is the normal state of affairs. And that in war, then all of the rules that usually apply to peacetime are put out of um, commission, basically, so that war is the exception. And that's, in a way, what is enshrined also in the normative framework, the the legal normative framework that we have today that regulates when you can go to war in international relations, which, again, is an exception only in a case of self-defense, for example. Um, And in in my part of the book and and, in this part on perceptions of, of time, we basically trace how these understandings um, impact the normative framework and how that in turn then impacts our ability to to wage uh, armed conflict today. Um, and uh, temporality is basically how societies and political orders understand the role of time in their actions. And um, this is basically the anchoring concept of, um, that goes through the entire book because the way we understand the role of time defines both the tra- trajectories because we can uh, imagine that there are um, linear trajectories of time, such as in the Western uh, understanding of time, or cyclical uh, trajectories, right? You uh, come back uh, with the eternal return. And temporality also shapes perceptions. And so in, in our case, we try to unpack um, 
what the specific Western temporality is. And we argue that there has been a bunch of social, sociological and political changes um, that have created a specific Western temporality, which is uh, more and more anchored into speed. Speed basically becomes the um, uh, understanding through which Western societies deal with time, because everything is about accelerating. Uh, we accelerate the pace of our social life but we also accelerate the pace of our daily interactions, the pace of political decisions, right? Where uh, there is this mythology of deciding fast uh, because uh, this idea is that faster decisions are more effective, they are more responsive. And it also has an impact on how we wage war. Because if we understand our relationship with time uh, through speed, well, we want to achieve quick victories. Right, we will amass, in a sense, resources. We will uh, aggregate uh, means so that you know we deliver uh, a powerful init uh, initial punch, so that we achieve victory in a quick and efficient way. The problem is when our temporality, so the way we understand time, in our case through speed, clashes with what's actually happening on the battlefield or what is happening, as, for example, Amelie explained in her section, uh, with how norms of uh, warfare are developing over time. So temporality is really about how we understand time and how the specific Western understanding of time is overdetermined by speed and how this overdetermination by speed becomes uh, counterproductive. Thank you. And at each of the, at, uh, the end of each of the three sections, uh, you have this kind of scenario essay that asks questions such as what if the U.S. pulls out of NATO? What if China takes control of Djibouti? And what if digital technologies fail in the battlefield? Why are these scenarios or presenting hypotheticals important to the larger arguments that are being made in the collection? So, so we, we use the scenario chapters to provoke some thinking uh, with the reader who has, you know, been through a section of essays, and so in, in, in section one of the book, there, there are um, there there are um, uh, gosh, I'm counting here. There are three essays, uh, three chapters, and then the scenario chapter. And the scenario chapter speaks to what we've been through in the other chapters. So in the in the political section of the book, uh, on on you know the West as uh, as this. Uh, unique political force of great international progress. Uh, and then we question that. And, and um, at the end of the section, um, Tobias Bunde, in this case, is asking the question, well, could it be that the West is really uh, nothing but the United States? That the West would cease to exist if the United States just let go and said, that's it. We withdraw from world uh, leadership. We withdraw from NATO. Would that put an end to the West? And clear, clearly there's no question the United States is important in the West. But is there a West beyond just the United States? That's what he's asking. And by pondering this question, you know, what if the United States pulled out of NATO? Would that just be the, the dreadful, brutal end of NATO? Or is there a West beyond the US to pick up the pieces and provide some sort of order? And if the reader, having been you know, with Tobias Bunde on this journey of, uh, of wild political imagination, answers, well, you know, if the US pulls out, that would pretty much be the end of it. We're, we're telling the reader... Well, in that case, your conception or your idea of the West is really thin. It's all about the U.S. That's something to ponder. Yeah, and in, in section uh, two, so the, the normative aspects of these things, where we look at uh, this question of what happens if China takes, or takes control of parts of Djibouti, um, what we're asking the reader to do there is, is basically... Um, consider how these normative problems that we've highlighted in the previous three um, chapters in that section can come together and actually inhibit our response, right? 
So in a way, what's interesting here is that that these normative issues that that contemporary warfare has caused for the West, right, where there's um, clashes between norms, clashes between the need to do something fast, but then actually the, the, the fear of being pulled into something that's drawn out in the end, and these questions of where does a conflict start, where does war start, where does war end, right, what is war, what is peace, these type of questions. Um, we're putting that to a test, basically. And we're saying, well, if China plays this right, then the West is has a problem based on its own normative clashes, right? And its own sort of normative hesitations. And uh, Ernst Dijkshorn, who wrote uh, our the scenario chapter in, in, the, in part two, um, basically creates this, this little story and, and then asks, so if this happens, if China takes control um, over parts of Djibouti as a fait accompli. So if they do this speedily, what then is left for the West to do? Um, and in his approach, I think that leaves the reader with a relatively scary image of, well, what is really left, right? Because it is quite questionable that a decision would be made that then could reverse that um, action taken. And how this plays out, I think, is a very nice illustration to, to exactly all of these normative clashes that the other chapters address based on other um, other cases and sort of other focus points. Yeah, well, when we're discussing the opportunity of uh, having uh, those kind of scenarios, I think the underlying thinking was that, you know, as academics, there, we have this temptation to be very analytical and uh, try to explain the past and hopefully the present uh, in the most... Um, uh, uh, accurate way possible and with proper concepts, but um, the the idea was that also we wanted the book to to spark a number of discussions, and we wanted the book to be ideally policy relevant. And we felt that by doing this kind of foresight exercises, which was basically uh, asking the the fundamental question of, okay. Um, we are here in 2021, but, you know, try to think ahead in 10 years' time and um, do your current assumptions still hold true under a credible uh, scenario? And by trying to provoke this kind of foresight thinking, we, uh, we were hoping that um, it will force readers to question their assumptions and uh, increase the policy relevance uh, of the book itself. And um, in, a, in my section on warfare, for example, we, um, the, the scenario is uh, what happens when um, uh, digital technologies fail on the battlefield. So basically questioning this notion of net, uh, network-centric warfare, that different sensors and captors will enrich each other and provide a better understanding of what's going on on the battlefield. And probably we should have entitled it what what happens when technological uh, digital technologies fail on the battlefield. And because that forces to think about um, our operations, um, operations plan, the way we train our soldiers, um, the way we train our officers to react in, in such situations. So it was really to try to um, uh, put ourselves as academics out of our comfort zone, but also hopefully put the reader out of the comfort zone. Perfect. And let's kind of get into some of those more academic aspects. And we can start with you, uh, Stin. Can you explain uh, civic militarism and how it relates to the tra trajectory of Western power? Certainly. Uh, so when we look at the literature on the West and, uh, you know, why the West has come to be a... Um, a predominant political force in international politics. Um, one of the things that you know, scholars can agree to is that there is a unique institutional blend within the West, uh, which is, on the one hand, you have a democratic participatory government where uh, leaders are held accountable, where citizens, uh, you know, are free men and women. Who uh, who are uh, you know um, uh, fully involved in in their own political destinies, um, and on the other hand, you have uh, a military establishment that is um, 
that is very capable in war and is capable of amassing the resources of society and challenging it into an organized force for war. So this blend of civic engagement and military force has been very powerful. Uh, now, some so the debate is this blend, which we call civic militarism, because you have both the free citizen and you know peace at home. Uh, you know, let's not uh, hit each other and uh, be, be cruel to each other. Let's be just and and good. But on the other hand, you have the instruments of war that you you defend yourself, civic militarism, and. When that works, you get a, um, a lot of resources from society because it's owned by citizens. A lot of resources from society in terms of participation, conscripts or technology or innovation or just finance from society that be, is being lent to the military instrument organized for external war. And that can become very powerful. And I think the literature reflects that this is what has happened in the West. And then there's a debate on, you know, when, why, and for how long, but let's leave that aside for now. And what what we're what we're we're doing with that concept is saying, well that concept has a lot of tension built into it as well. Because civil society or the civic side of this is really to say peace is the normal condition and progress is our destiny. And war is an aberration of sorts. But on the military side, it's very much more, it's, much, it's not progressive, it's cyclical. War, you know, only the dead have seen the end of war kind of thing. And, um, and it raises the question, where does Western society see itself? Is it that we must learn to live with war? And thus ultimately be beholden to a warrior culture? Or is it that, no, we can overcome war, we can make it better tomorrow. War can be, uh, uh, you know, what is, what is the, uh, um, the John Lennon song, you know, uh, uh, you, uh, I, I forget now, but, uh, you know, um, you can have peace if you want it, right? If, if you imagine it, you can have peace. Um, and which one is it? If you confront those questions, you have to choose sides. And the civic militarism equilibrium on which Western power is built does not allow you to choose sides. And so there's the drama for the Western political condition. And what we're asking in this section is, can the West maintain its equilibrium, both civic and military, or is it losing its equilibrium and thus losing its ability to run wars or control wars, restrain war. And has that equilibrium changed over time? Is that something that's traceable? Is that so? We we we, we go by the literature, and the, the the literature is looking back to the um, to the classical age of uh, you know ancient Greece uh, when, when these concepts and this way of thinking, participatory politics emerged and uh, it has inspired some people to say that the Western tradition begins there and it has run ever since. And others say that it began with the modern state uh, some three, four hundred years ago and uh, has thus become um, uh, differently wedded to industrialization and uh, the growth of uh, Atlantic politics. And yet others say that well, that's all nice and well, but in fact, it, it only really happened in the 19th century, and then it lasted for about 100 years, and it's now going, going, gone, and the West is, is, is history. And so we, we engage these positions in the debate, and we, we employ it uh, in an assessment of where we are today. So we're, we're not really taking sides. So some of the authors uh, who come contributed chapters, they, they have their views, and you know I think uh, it's worthwhile engaging them. Uh, but what we do in the section is, is, uh, is paint a, with a broader brush, and, uh, and then we get to the scenario chapter, you know, what mm -hmm. if, uh, and then asking people to ponder the implications hereof, uh, and 
and set tee themselves up for what Olivier said was also one of the purposes of the book. You know, what what would you do if if you were a decision maker? Um, and in section two, Amelie, you write about Western perceptions of time and the international normative order. So I was wondering, what are some of the existing norms in perceptions um, of time in war and kind of how have those changed over time as well? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we, we, we start sort of with the basics and, and that's how this perception, this Western perception of time and the normative order are connected. And that's basically because the existing normative order of, of sort of legal and other norms that regulate um, war and behavior in war is, is based on this fundamental, as I said in the beginning, this fundamental Western idea that war is the exception and, and peace is, is normality, right? And the idea here is that um, there, are, there are certain dynamics going on, right, that are pointing towards a change in the normative order. So you had, for example, uh, Donald Trump as a president who, who put question marks uh, uh, almost everything uh, when it came to the international normative order, refusing to sign documents that made reference uh, to, to the international uh, normative order and these type of things. And then you have the emergence of, of Russia and China who put forward sort of their own interpretation of these norms, um, thereby questioning exactly these, these foundations, right? And you have non-state actors that um, terrorists, other, other violent non-state actors that on purpose disregard the norms because, of course, it, it gives them an advantage to not fight by the rules, right? Um, and we have these new forms of warfare hybrid warfare, gray zone warfare, that exactly play with these normative restrictions um, also on purpose to negate sort of conventional um, military superiority by the West, led by the US, right? Because in a direct sort of fair um, fight against the US, these actors can't win. So they're not playing by the rules. And all of that comes together to, to sort of challenge that normative order, right? Um, and being specific about some of the changes that you've, that you've um, asked about, what we're seeing, for example, within the West is that there's both um, an understanding that the West needs to be able to intervene quickly to protect civilians, for example. So if a state um, goes in and, and, and acts against violently against its own civilians, there's a normative understanding that something needs to be done about this, of course, as soon as possible to avoid loss of, of civilian lives. While at the same time, you have the sort of normative um, break that you don't want to get bucked down in another drawn out war. You don't want to, with your actions, make the situation worse, right? You don't want to, with your actions, then contribute to another 10 years of civilian casualties of bombing somewhere. So you have these splits um, happening within the West. And then you have the split sort of between um, Russia and China and the West, where you have different perceptions um, by Russia and by China about how conflict is a much more sort of comprehensive um, situation going on, where they use political means, economic means, cultural means, um, as part of sort of their, their more universal approach to being in conflict with the West, while we in the West have this clear distinction between when is a war a war, right? There's a clear threshold. So if there's the use of armed force, which means physical death and destruction, then we're in a, we're in a war with, with the other state. But otherwise, we're not. And we have a different rule set that then applies that doesn't quite um, allow us to work with these type of conflicts that we're seeing in, in the gray zone. And uh, I guess finally, Olivier, you write about time, speed, and uh, military operations. What exactly is the difference between time and speed and how have these concepts become ingrained so much in Western militaries? Yeah, exactly. So the last question, uh, section is really about warfare, so the conduct of military operations. And the core argument from this section is that um, over time, there is a tension in Western warfare because on the one hand, 
the conduct of military operations is really determined by speed. So we try to achieve effects relatively quickly because this is the kind of uh, indications that uh, politicians and policymakers give to the military, right? And also that um, uh, because of technological superiority, there is this notion and temptation that we can go faster than the adversary. And if we go faster, we will win um, earlier and the war will be shorter. But on the other hand, since for the past 30 to 40 years, um, we have shifted our understanding of what war means to have a much broader understanding of security in the sense that instead of identifying enemies or adversaries that need to be deterred, we need to, we have moved towards a mentality of risks that needs to be managed. A bit of kind of a police activity where you, you always need to patrol to make sure that no crime is happening. And using the armed forces as a risk management tool is exactly what leads to forever wars because there is there is always a risk somewhere. So there is this tension between, on the one hand, um, trying to achieve quick and fast battlefield effects, and on the other hand, this mentality of using military power as a tool of uh, global police force or global risk management uh, resource. And something which is really striking is, for example, uh, General Mattis, when he was uh, commanding the first Marines division in uh, in Iraq, he, um, he said that, um, and uh, I'm quoting here, um, we knew that the center of gravity was speed, and he says speed equals success, which is very strong when you think in pure Clausewitzian uh, terms, uh, speed cannot be a center of gravity, right? It's not a weakness per se, so it's very telling that one of the most respected military officers in his generation um, really emphasizes the role that speed is playing in the conduct of operations in Iraq in 2003. But at the same time, Iraq is exactly the result of the risk management mentality I was um, talking about earlier, that if you have a bad citizen, you need to uh, police, uh, police them. And um, instead, uh, even though there was an emphasis on speed in the conduct of uh, conventional meter operations, the U.S. still ended up being bogged down in not a forever war, but for much longer than was uh, initially, initially planned. So this tension between speed in warfare and risk management leading to forever wars is really what this section is really about. And uh, so the different chapters tackle different uh, dimensions. We have a chapter on um, by Pascal Vincent who's looking at doctrinal change in the US, the UK, and France, and trying to show how um, basically uh, doctrine writers have tried to um, encapsulate in official uh, doctrinal, uh, doctrinal documents this um, preference for speed, but that the reality of uh, the conduct of unit operations always forced um, Western forces to adapt to actually much longer um, interventions. There is a chapter by uh, Nina Kolars who is looking at um, the different documents from uh, the US services when it comes to multi-domain operations or multi-domain battle, depending on uh, how you, you, however you want to call it. And she shows that all of them rely on getting faster data and faster information in order to act faster than the enemy, but that they are logically inconsistent with each other. So it might become a problem uh, for joint operations in the, in, um, uh, in the long run, because the different services clearly understand the same term in very different ways. And there is also a chapter by Heather Williams on uh, strategic weapons um, especially, um, and trying to counter the hype about uh, new weapons such as, you know, hypervelocity missiles or cyber uh, operations, you know, which allow immediate um, uh, effects. 
and showing that um, this hype about these new um, speedy or fast weapons, uh, if you want, actually do not really change the fundamentals of uh, strategic challenges such uh, and strategic practices such as uh, deterrence uh, and compellence. So she's really uh, arguing that we, you know, uh, we should take a step back, and it's not because there, are, there have been technolo- technological improvements that the fundamental logic of, um, you know, um, uh, nuclear parity and uh, strategic stability is being affected by uh, those technologies. Uh, so, yeah, uh, again, this section is really about this tension uh, between risk management and uh, speed in the conduct of operations. Hearing uh, hearing Olivier uh, introduce all his chapters makes me want to talk a little bit more about the individual chapters in my section as yes, well, because I only gave sort of an overarching uh, um, look at the sort of the main uh, topic of, of the section. But I think it might actually be worth sort of diving a little bit into each of the chapters, just like Olivier has done now for his section, um, to sort of show how these things really play out Um when it comes to these normative dynamics that I've that I've been mentioning. Um, and so chapter five in the book, the first chapter in section two, has been um, written by Kathleen McGuinness. And she actually looks at the norm of civilian protection, so trying to avoid civilian casualties as, as much as possible. And what she um, analyzes, she looks at Afghanistan and, and how that plays out in, in Afghanistan. And she actually sees... Um, a clash of temporalities sort of between the tactical level and the strategic level, where on the tactical level, you have, again, this need for speed that Olivier in his section also um, looks at, that you need swift battlefield victories and you need to be able to sort of swiftly react and target and, and all of these things. So things have to go fast. But on a more strategic level, the need to avoid civilian casualties is actually a drawn out process, right? And requires time and it requires careful planning and it requires careful training of local forces as well that then gets compromised because you need to be quick in producing enough numbers of local forces, right? Um, And that actually leads to sort of a drawn out uh, campaign and thereby increased casualty numbers. And then she also looks at campaign coherence and, and, and strategy and how that plays into all of this. Um, so it's very interesting and very enlightening in how sort of these dynamics at different levels come together to end up increasing um, the, the number of civilian casualties, even though we're trying to keep them as low as possible. Um, chapter six, then, by Natasha Court, she looks at norms of intervention. And she asks whether Russia and China actually interpret these norms very differently to the West or whether it is the Western norms themselves that allow Russia and China to sort of have very different perspectives. And she concludes that it is, in fact, divisions within the West on these norms um, that then allow Russia and China sort of the wiggle room to, 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 to argue for how they've been arguing, especially um, Russia, when it, for example, comes to Ukraine. And what they're, what they're basically doing is they're using similar arguments to the West against uh, the West than, uh, themselves based on a similar interpretation of norms that is based on this clash within the West of what to do and how to do and when to do it. Um, a little bit along the lines what I've outlined in the beginning, this need to both intervene but not intervene at the same time. Um, and then my own chapter that I wrote together with Peter Viggo Jakobsen looks at this distinction between wartime and peacetime and how that's being played with um, by Russian and Chinese gray zone warfare and how that that type of warfare is designed to stay under the threshold and thereby sort of slow down the West in its response, right? Because it both allows sort of a f- high speed of attack when it comes to cyber warfare, for example, and it allows um, an almost unnoticed uh, number of attacks as well because we don't quite know what the new normal actually should look like, right? Um, so it's really difficult to establish uh, an attack-free baseline on which then to judge what's actually going on. Um, and all of that sort of comes together to really create this question of whether we can hold on to this distinction and 
we come quite firmly down on the side of, yes, we should hold on to this distinction because some of the peacetime mechanisms that we have actually help us deal with this type of conflict. But uh, I think I'll leave it to the listener to read the chapter and then agree or disagree with us uh, on that. Yeah, and I understand, yes. Well, uh, since we're doing a tour to the chapters, um, <laughs> let me give, give me a brief brief appetizer here, uh, a buffet of, of section one, where again, the, the overarching concept is civic militarism. And the question is, is the West able to keep its balance? Can it do both civic society and military society? And we have three chapters that are all saying that in a sense, politically, we're losing our balance because decision makers are being swept up in military thinking, military affairs, the pragmatic need for certain partnerships or for speed or for quick decisions. And we have the first chapter by Sarah Krebs and Adi Rao. They're looking at the Western state in a three, 400 year perspective, saying that Western decision makers are really undermining themselves by the way they finance wars. Then we have Paul Brister looking at a short time frame, 200 years, reaching the same conclusion, looking at strategy and strategic issues. And we have the final chapter by Rebecca Moore looking at a much shorter time frame, so last 30 to 40 years, um, concluding that when we do international operations, we tend to become pragmatic and ally with states uh, that really do not reinforce our values. And so, again, we're becoming too pragmatic for our own good. And so we pursue this question of civic militarism in three three historical contexts, three, 400 years, 200 years, and 30 to 40 years. Um, all good. So now we did the book. <laughs> now we can talk context. Over to you, Carl. Yeah, and I, I think it's a fair ass assessment to say that much of this collection focuses on the problems of Western military power in relation to its people, its institutions, and its operations. Um, so kind of um, letting our hair down a bit from the academic literature, do you uh, would you say that these conditions are sustainable? Are they unsustainable? Where do each of you think that the West should go from here? Um, should we should we be looking um, at other places for inspiration? I'm just going to open the floor up to y'all to see what you think about that. So um, let me kick that off. Um, we have some policy advice in the end. Uh, broad framework thinking. We're not saying do A, B, and C and everything will be good. But we're saying that definitely the West needs to slow down and it needs to contextualize its inner drive for always being fast and always being on the, on the move. It needs to contextualize its fascination with technology that somehow if we have the latest advanced tool, we will win. Uh, and we need to spend more time contemplating the human societal side of war. Um, and we're not saying it's a given. Um, and I would say from, from my perspective, um, having done the, the political side, I, I, would, I would say that the West is losing its balance and it, it is at risk of not being able to to restrain itself by having as a requirement that societies need to be involved in war if you want war to serve political purposes. And, you know, we, we can talk about, you know, why, why the society tends not to be involved in war, but I think it's important to understand that we need to increase our own pain in war. Because pain is what is going to slow us down and cause us to think, can we do this differently? Is there another sustainable way of dealing with 
the fact that we have armed forces in our societies and that they serve a political purpose. And pain can be, you know, taxing people or having politicians, uh, um, you know, um, defend their values in in elections or commit to international diplomacy and partnerships with like-minded nations. So bring out the all the difficult pieces of engaging society in the political decisions and the diplomatic decisions that are so difficult. But ultimately, the the peace that will restrain war. And if if we if we chase blitzkrieg, uh, lightning wars, because we think we can accelerate to win to to victory then we will be doing ourselves a disservice. Uh, I guess, yeah, we are, your overarching um, understanding that we have is that we cannot accelerate our way uh, to victory and that in the long run, it becomes unsustainable for Western countries to um, prosecute war in, uh, in that fashion. And even speaking to to my section uh, on warfare specifically, just the fact that um, trying to achieve a better uh, balancing between the short-term, the immediacy, and the long-term objectives uh, will probably lead to a reassessment of a number of policies. For example, um, military interventions abroad are actually quite taxing for uh, for a large number of Western armed forces in terms of providing material, uh, funding, uh, su- such interventions. Um, and it has an impact on how you prepare uh, for the long run, in how you train your officers, in how you um, acquire new materials uh, that will you know, help win in uh, the potential massive war uh, in the future. So there is a trade-off between short-term, immediate military interventions and the long-term sustainability of your uh, armed forces, uh, especially in a, uh, in a post-COVID context and a post-financial crisis uh, context where you know we have been in a um, uh, financial slump for the past uh, 13 years now, and it's probably not going to get any better uh, post-COVID. So hard choices will need to be made in terms of do you do we want to uh, keep adapting to um, to the short term uh, and to threats that are definitely not um, I would say life altering uh, or are not um, of, of the level of uh, risking the uh, disappearance of uh, contemporary Western states or do we want to focus on more long term? Uh, resilient and sustainable uh, armed forces that will have the mass, the tech- the innovative technologies, and the uh, trained manpower to um, operate in, a, in this new context of however we want to call it, strategic competition, return of great power competitions, you name it, right? But uh, there is a tension here, which is re- also related to how we perceive the immediacy, urgency, um, uh, of, uh, of the short-term issues compared with the long-term issues. And a similar question actually is, poses itself in, in regards to the normative framework as well, I would say, that sort of based on the analysis in, 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 in that section, what you end up with is basically this question of, I mean, do you consider, as the West, do you consider the existing normative order as outdated and as useless in regards to sort of the enemies that we have in regards to the, the, the challenges that we're facing? Or do you try to actually hold on to it? Because it does give you a framework for how you can use force effectively and productively also, right? And the coming back to something that, that Steen said, I think this leaves us with this point that these dynamics need to be discussed and they need to be made visible to so that we first of all can understand how the normative order affects what we can and can't do and how we do things when it comes to war as the west and and also where exactly it is constraining but also maybe where it is giving us 
possibilities and identity and um, sort of relates back to who we are and how we fight, right? Um, and in that also is a foundation of Western military strength and Western military power as such, right? So it creates this, this question of, I mean, where do we go from here? Do we accept it as something that's worth preserving or do we discard it and thus also lose part of the foundation of, of Western military power per se? And I guess we can leave those questions for our listeners to answer for themselves. Um, what is next for all of you? What projects are you working on now? What are you working on next? Stin, would you like to start us off? Certainly. Um, I um, I actually have a, uh, uh, a developing project on NATO and Russia and how to combine defense and deterrence, which NATO does fairly well, not perfectly by any means, but fairly well, and diplomacy, and which is, we're really struggling to figure out how do we talk to the Russians and what are we gonna talk about? Because they seem to be uh, from another planet, or maybe we are, but we're, we're, we're certainly having a hard time coming to a point of dialogue. And uh, I will look into the, this this type of situation and 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 do some historical comparisons to to uh, to offer some um, some provocative thinking. I hope. Amelie, would you like to go? Yeah, sure. Um, so I enjoyed the, this uh, process of uh, creating an edited volume so much that I'm actually currently wo- working on two more book projects. Um, one is uh, my own. Um, and uh, that sort of focuses on, on the classification of armed conflict and how sort of these legal categories that we have for when a war is a war um, affect are affected by political decision-making and political interests, right? Um, and how that then in, fa- in, in turn affects the rule sets that we operate um, under. And then as the second uh, book project is also an edited volume and that focuses sort of on the roles of fighters and battlefields um, in contemporary warfare and how these categories become both broader and narrower at the same time and affect each other um, when we're looking at what war looks like today. And I'm uh, doing that with two of our colleagues, uh, Shirstein Carlson and uh, Marie Robin from uh, the University of Southern Denmark as well. So we're quite uh, excited uh, about that project. And Olivia. And I guess that's my turn. Um, I have two short-term and one uh, more longer-term project. As a short-term project, um, I'm co-touring an article for a special issue on uh, civil-military relations, but within ministries of defense. So trying to uh, not tackle it through you know, the broad categories of who are the civilians, who are the military, how does it interact, but how does that play out in the daily life of how um, ministries of defense are organized. And uh, unsurprisingly, I'm doing the French case. Um, and with a, um, another colleague, we are looking at a, um, so it's for another uh, special issue, we're looking at how uh, defense industries adapt to a change in the uh, context of alliances. So looking at the Czech Republic and Estonia, and uh, trying to look at how their defense industries basically shifted from having to produce for the Soviet Union and uh, how do, did they manage the turn towards NATO, which has a totally different um, defense market uh, and uh, also totally different rules for operating. So those two are the short-term project article length. And um, my, uh, I, when, I, when I find the time, I try to work a bit on my uh, next book, uh, which hopefully will be a, um, uh, a, um, a broader conceptualization of military change, because I'm uh, a bit unhappy with um, uh, the multiplicity of terms that exist, you know, military revolution, military innovation, military adaptation, military change. I think those need conceptual cl- uh, clarification. And uh, I'm going to try to write a book on that. <laughs> yeah. Great. I look forward to all of that. Um, thank you very much for your time. And thank you for being here today. Yep. 
Thank you for having us. Thanks, and and thank you to our listeners for joining us for our discussion of the new essay collection, Wartime, Temporality, and the Decline of Western Military Power, recently published by Brookings Institute Press and Chatham House. Bye for now.